Hello, and welcome to Smart Pill, a podcast where each episode delivers concentrated knowledge on one specific topic. The podcast is brought to you by the Emerging Leaders Board, a diverse group of young professionals who are passionate about bringing public media to a millennial generation. I'm your host, Nisha Witt, and you're listening to our Women Veterans series. Being in the military can be challenging, but being a woman in the military has its own unique set of challenges. In this episode, you'll hear three women veterans share their stories on what it means to be a woman in uniform. These stories were recorded live at an event, Emerging Talks, Cloaked in Invisibility, presented by WHRO Emerging Leaders Board and Global Shapers Norfolk. Our first speaker is Isada Ramirez, a retired Army captain and graduate of the Armed Services Arts Partnership Comedy Bootcamp, a stand-up comedy class exclusively for veterans. She spoke about how it felt to put on the uniform. Maybe the uniform is finally going to give me the superpower that I always wanted as a little girl. Our second speaker is Barbara Ramirez, who retired from the United States Navy after 30 years of service. She spoke about changing the perceptions of what women could accomplish in service. I realized that if I didn't break the laws of the military, Our third contributor is Anne Barleep, a retired Army officer and combat veteran. She wrote about her steadfast, enduring relationship with her uniform across 13 years of service. I was there when you proved you could, in fact, do anything your male colleagues could do, and sometimes better. Enjoy the stories! I'd like to welcome to the stage Isaura Ramirez. Thank you so much for having me here. It's an honor to be invited to share the stage with amazing women veterans and supporters of women veterans. And I was getting ready to be here and prepare my remarks. I dawned on me that it's been 16 years since I first put on my first pair of BDUs, and that's Army talk for that green camouflage uniform that we're all familiar with, that the Army used to wear back in the day. Do not do the math. And I just remember feeling so proud and you know a high sense of accomplishment when I first wore that uniform because I knew that less than 1% of the population would have the honor of wearing that uniform. The original version. (laughs) Not the trendy knockout version you could get a Forever 21 in clearance. Not the skinny jeans, I'm talking about the real ones, the big ones with the cargo pockets that are cut perfectly for male bodies to make young female soldiers look like 12-year-old boys. (laughs) That is the uniform I loved. And I looked in the mirror and I love the reflection. I'm like, I look good on this uniform. I think this is gonna be okay. And secretly, you know, I was starting, I started to think, maybe this is it. And maybe this the uniform is finally going to give me the super power that I always wanted as a little girl. And that most women will want at some point in their professional career. And that is the super power of 
instant credibility. It's like, I'm going to walk now in my uniform, right? And people are going to look at me in my uniform, and they're, something's going to click. And they're going to start using a logical thought process <laughs> that will take them to the conclusion that, huh, if she's wearing that uniform, it must be that she did, at a minimum, some of the stuff that the other men with the same uniform and rank have accomplished. So she must be all right. And that's really all I wanted in my military career, to get a she is all right for first impression. I, I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? Being able to just walk in a room full of fellow soldiers that never met me before, and they will look at me in my uniform and think, huh, she probably did some stuff. Maybe we should listen to her. <laughs> but that's never happened in the history of ever to any woman in the military, right? I mean, I hate to break it to you, but the uniform does not give superpowers to women. I don't know about men, not to women, that's for sure. In fact, the military has changed that same uniform a bunch of times, probably because of all the women calling and complaining that it didn't work the way it was supposed to. <laughs> so I took off the uniform. And now I like to dress like, I don't know, a Kardashian version of Steve Jobs. <laughs> I don't know, I get out of the military, I'm confused. I don't know which career field to take. Both of them seem very successful. Let's just merge them together and hope for the best. I will let you know, uh, too soon to tell, but we'll find out on the comments, that's for sure. <laughs> so the whole point of that story is that women veterans are invisible. And no matter how much we want to talk about how much progress we've made and we've opened up combat roles for women and blah, 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 the reality is that the problem remains the same and it's very simple. All things being equal, you know, same pay grade, position, experience, a woman's rank does not carry the same weight as a man's rank. Why? Because of bias. And we're all biased, men and women. If I ask you to close your eyes and bring up a mental picture of a soldier, most of you would be lying if you say that you did not picture a man in uniform. Strong, competent, brave man in uniform. Only to open up your eyes and be disappointed by me on stage representing veterans and crushing all your hopes and dreams for this country. <laughs> I get it, all right? I, I understand where that's coming from. We all are struggling with the same thing. But I just say this to prove a point that women veterans do face very unique challenges. And I believe that it's not just women veterans. It's not just a problem in the military. It's a problem that all women across the country that work in male-dominated fields are struggling with. Studies confirm that women in male-dominated fields experience isolation, sexual harassment, and low levels of support in the workplace. Women in the military report feeling pressure to prove themselves to be capable, and they have a hard time bonding with members of the unit because there aren't that many women in the military. And then we fear that getting too close to men will label us in the wrong category. 
And then when we transition out of the military, women struggle with finding and identifying with women, other women in the community, and finding a connection with them. I received a medical retirement from the Army in 2014 after 13 years of service. And every day I struggle with very real physical chronic pain as a fibromyalgia patient. And I also have to manage my anxiety and keep my depression in check. And because I still haven't found that one magic pill, the VA has found a lot of pills, uh, <laughs> just one one. I haven't found that one pill that's going to stop all my conditions, right? So I learned to identify what triggers my symptoms getting worse. And what I realized is that nothing hurts more than feeling alone. And I say feeling because what you feel is not necessarily always a true reflection of your real circumstances. So are women veterans really invisible? No, of course not. We know they exist, but do we see them? So tonight, I encourage you to take a moment and I want you to identify all your preconceived notions about women veterans and put them away. I want you to picture, you know, when you're on an airplane and the pilot, the female pilot, says, <laughs> we're about to land. And then you get the, the flight attendant, the male flight attendant, he's coming with a little trash bag. He's like, pull out your trash before we land. That's what I want you to do. I want you to take all those preconceived notions, treat them as trash and put them in the little trash bag because we're about to land. And we're gonna start from scratch because I believe all of us, we all can start from scratch. And all I need from you is to open up your minds, sit still for a moment and listen. Please welcome to the stage, Barbara Ramirez. I recently retired from the United States Navy after 30 years of service. Actually, my last day is 1 December. I joined the Navy from Queens, New York in November of 1987. I knew nothing of the military except what I saw on TV. And unlike today, there wasn't much reality TV. I wasn't prepared for what I was going to encounter after joining. I thought I was joining an organization comprised of society's elite. But what I didn't know was that the or a direct reflection of society. And we too had people that weren't tolerant, didn't believe in fairness, and were committed to keeping us in the 18th century. While being in the Navy, I was exposed to discrimination, sexual harassment, and physical abuse. But believe me, this didn't stop me. It later fueled me. As I said, I was raised in New York, better known as the melting pot. Prior to joining the Navy, I never experienced discrimination. Everyone seemed to get along, regardless of race or gender. Boys and girls cooperated from kindergarten all the way through graduation. So not being equal was foreign to me, but then maybe again, real life doesn't start until we hit the workforce. I can tell you that at first, I was confused at what was happening, and even thought of throwing in the towel. But then I got mad. My anger turned into determination, and my determination turned into impact. When I joined, women weren't allowed on combat and ships. 
submarines, or the special warfare community. Child care wasn't prevalent, and women were never in charge. But I am proud to say that I used my voice and actions to affect change just as those who served before me. The first women to serve in the United States Navy were nurses, began with the Sacred 20. Appointed after Congress established the Navy Nurse Corps on 13 May 1908, the first large-scale enlistment of women into the Navy met clerical shortages during World War I, and the second came months before the United States entered World War II. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed a public law 689 creating the Navy's Women Reserve Program on 30 July 1942, which paved the way for officer and enlisted women to enter the Navy. Today, women serve in every rank from seaman to admiral and in every job from Navy aviator to deep sea diver. In 1993, Congress appealed the Combat Exclusion Law, thereby allowing women to serve on combatant ships. And when I first had my opportunity to serve on board a ship, I jumped on it. I worked hard to be the best, and when I wasn't being recognized based on my merit, I learned to use psychological warfare, which proved to be a most valuable skill, <laughs> one which I will later describe. In 1995, I screened to be one of the first four females to be assigned to Naval Special Warfare. <clears throat> it was a women's pilot program, and if we were successful, more women would follow. I have to say that my time assigned to Naval Special Warfare Group 2 was my most rewarding tour that I had in my 30 years. Being in my tour, we weren't really challenged with opportunities. We were almost treated like children, where parents told us, you should be seen and not heard. I watched as four of us worked hard. We pulled our weight and we contributed, but would consistently be overlooked for opportunities. When I was given my first performance evaluation and was given a promotable, which is probably one of the lowest recommendations, I asked to speak to my department head to dispute my evaluation. I sat across my department head, and I'm sure he was expecting me to whine, complain, and possibly cry like a little girl. But instead, this is where I used my psychological warfare. I first listed all my accomplishments and contributions, which he couldn't dispute more notable. However, how I drove my point home was I compared myself to a rose bush. I told him that because they weren't including us, they weren't challenging us, that all they saw was a brown bush with prickly thorns that annoyed them. But if they had paid attention to us and fed us and watered us, we would produce a bounty of beautiful, colorful flowers that would amaze them. From that day forward, we were included, we were challenged, and we did blossom. I actually was awarded Sailor of the Year and advanced to Chief Petty Officer from that command. After I left Naval Special Warfare, I commissioned the USS Winston S. Churchill and was the only female chief on board. Remember, females was just allowed to serve on these types of ships. At this command, I learned that psychological warfare wouldn't work. The senior sailors that I was working alongside had never been stationed with women and didn't have any intentions of giving us a chance. I was physically assaulted and even spat on by my peers. I didn't fight them with words or wrong. I knew that no amount of reasoning would work, so I changed tactics. I worked harder than I'd ever worked before. I slept no more than four hours a day and did everything I could to be better than every chief on board. I spent every waking hour working on improving myself 
my personnel, and my command. I didn't spend time worrying about why I wasn't included. I just continued to do the right thing for the right reason. Even though my peers and superiors didn't recognize me or include me, my personal accomplishments and my personnel's accomplishments spoke for me. Other sailors from other divisions wanted to emulate my sailors, and they would question their chiefs as why they didn't do what I did. The pressure from the sailors' demands and expectations pushed the other chiefs to reluctantly emulate me. I transferred from the USS Winston S. Churchill as a senior chief and learned that when you are selfless, you will be rewarded. After a brief shore duty, I took orders to the amphibious ship USS Nassau, where I served as division leading chief petty officer, branch leading chief petty officer, and finally department leading chief petty officer. From there, I advanced to master chief petty officer, which is only 1% of the Navy can achieve this milestone. I achieved this highest enlisted rank in the Navy and learned that it would take an act of Congress to strip me of my right. At that time, I realized that if I didn't break the laws of the military, I basically was bulletproof. So this is where I used my voice in conjunction with my actions and was determined to ensure that I paved the way for women to come as women have before me. I was later assigned to combat Naval Special Warfare Submarine Forces Atlantic and was instrumental in women being accepted on board submarines. I was respected in the community and was sought out by Admiral Donnelly. He had many conversations about, about bringing women into the Navy submarine force, what challenges I faced, and what challenges I thought that women would face if allowed on board submarines. I told him that if, we had meant, if he had implemented women on board submarines slowly and selectively, screened the women to first arrive, the men would have no choice but to accept the change and embrace the diversity. To date, we have no real issues to speak of, of women on board submarines, and they continue to succeed as they do throughout the Navy. The Navy is by far more tolerant of women than they were when I first joined 30 years ago. I'm not going to say that I believe men and women are equal, because I don't believe that. I believe that we deserve the same opportunities. I believe that women have different attributes and strengths. For example, most men are physically stronger than women, but women have something that most men don't have, and that's the need to nurture. By definition, to nurture is the process of caring for and encouraging the growth of or development of something or someone. So however strong the men are, they are only strong with the support of women. My advice to any woman in or out of the service is be the best you that you can be. Be the best human being that you can be. Work hard and stay the course and be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Thank you. The uniform remembers. I was there during ROTC when you were a cadet trying to convince yourself and everyone else that a woman could do anything a man could do. I was there when you commissioned. I watched you raise your right hand and swear to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I was there when you proved you could, in fact, do anything your male colleagues could do, and sometimes better. I remember you could run, jump, and fly. 
I was there when you ran ultra marathons, jumped from airplanes, and flew helicopters. I spent 18 months with you in Iraq. I listened to the screams for help coming over the radio as you frantically flew in as close as you possibly could, hoping it would deter enemy contact until they evacuated the injured. I was soaked through. I was there when you got sick. We handed out American flags at the children's hospital the day before your brain surgery. I am in all of those photos, surrounded by surprised and smiling faces, joy, hope, heroism, idealism, patriotism. I know it feels like a whole different lifetime ago. Perhaps it was, and still, here we are, it's hard to believe, but you do. I was there after the surgery when you still didn't feel well and sometimes felt even worse than before. I went to all the appointments and watched so many doctors dismiss you. I sat with you in the car while you cried until dark in that empty parking lot, consumed with despair and helplessness. I was there when you started wondering if it made sense to ever have chased after what the men were doing in the first place. Wars and dreams and honestly, who knows what else. Just to prove to yourself, just because you'd ask yourself, did that make any sense at all? What the hell was I thinking? I was there when you tried to kill yourself because you couldn't take the pain, the shame, the guilt the regret, the unknowingness anymore. I was there when you survived. I was there when they finally found the nerve damage and sent you to the medical board. You know as well as I do, they are going to separate us here shortly. I was there late at night and early into the morning for months on end while you read all about railway spine shell shock, Agent Orange, PTSD, and burn pits, about concussions, TBIs, and IED blasts, about doctors Harvey Cushing, Walter Cannon, and George Cryle, about the NFL, the DOD, and the NIH, about stress, hormones, and the history of healthcare in our country and others. I'm very sorry you ever looked into all of that, for what you learned and for how it changed the both of us in your mind forever. I was there when they forced you to defend yourself in front of a board of taxpayer-dependent bureaucrats. I watched you raise your right hand and swear to tell the truth about medical conditions that were already definitively diagnosed and well-documented in your record. I was soaked through worse in that moment than ever before. I was there when the system failed you, absent accountability, an apology, or any explanation. I too worry about the others. I was there when the question and unknowingness haunted you again. Does this make any sense? And worse, what is next for me, for all of us? I am 
your uniform. And I want you to know that I hate all these things that I happen to remember. So then cut me up and make me into something beautiful, something that makes sense. Now more than ever, the world needs more of that. It desperately needs more of you and the kind of memories we can love. Please go on without me and make those memories go on. Anne Barley, patient, Walter Reed, Combat Paper, October 2016. You've taken your Smart Pill and you're better for it. Smart Pill is brought to you by the WHRO Emerging Leaders Board a diverse group of young professionals in their 20s and 30s who believe in the power of public media to make their voices heard. The podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Emerging Talks event series, bringing critical information and important conversations to people in Hampton Roads and across the country. The podcast is produced by Keith Saunders, Ryan McIntyre, Truly Matthews, and Leslie Clements, and produced in association with WHRO, sound recording and technical assistance by Victor Bowen. Special thanks to WHRO Director of Community Engagement, Nancy Rogan, and the WHRO Marketing Department. On behalf of the Emerging Leaders Board, I'm your host, Nisha Witt, and I will talk to you again when it's time to take your smart pill.